there we go. So welcome. There we go. So glad you're here. I'm Ashley. Uh, as Brian uh, did so well, covering so much information, there's so much going on. Uh, uh, I'm the teaching pastor out at Malden, and so glad to be back with you uh, again, and uh, excited for Dustin to be out there with our campus. Uh, we are in Isaiah chapter 9. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. It's in the Old Testament, about halfway through the Old Testament, if you're not familiar with the Old Testament. So um, if you'll turn in your Bibles there, if you don't have that, it'll be on the screen as well. But I would love to start our time together by reading from Isaiah chapter 9, starting with verse 1. Verse 1 says, But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the later time he, speaking here of the Lord, has made glorious the way of the sea. The land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwell in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken, as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the trampling warrior in battle, tumult, and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Father, we thank you for the time that we have for the next few moments. I'm grateful that we have the opportunity to worship, to come to this place in the middle of a Christmas season that would be very, I'm sure for a lot of us, tumultuous, very busy, <clears throat> excuse me, a lot of things happening, a lot of things going on. And I pray that we have this moment to look at some names that Isaiah, hundreds of years before you came to the earth as a child. These names describe who you are, and Isaiah gives them to us here in Isaiah chapter 9, I pray as we look at each of these names that we would, that I would understand you more than just a baby in a manger. That I would, that I would, and that we would consider this morning that Christmas should not be and cannot be the only time we celebrate Jesus. So I pray as we look at those titles today, these names of Jesus as they describe him, that it would impact our own hearts, that we would learn of you this morning in such a way that by understanding who you are, we better understand who we are in you, our identity in Christ. And maybe for those in the room this morning, they understand who they are without you. And that today, that could change. And they could have a relationship with you. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for giving me the chance to be here, Dustin, and I, I love your pastor, and, and if you've known Dustin for any length of time, here's what I can tell you. you many of you in the room, uh, I do know, I've, uh, we've, 
We've been, my wife and I, my family have been at First Baptist since 06. So 2006, we've been here a long time, just not in the role of a teaching pastor. So a lot of you in the room I've, I've interacted with in other roles that I've had, but there, most of you in the room don't know me. Here's how I can tell you really quickly on how you can know me. If you know Dustin, just think opposite. That's me. Okay? Um, guys, I don't know if that's me or not. If, if you know me, just think opposite. All right? Um, Dustin um, is, the, is, is the, one of the biggest personalities I know. And I love Dustin. He and I have got to know each other so much better as we've served together on the teaching team. And uh, it's, it's, it's one thing that comes to mind as I think about Dustin um, and I smile because I know he's doing the same thing right now for me at Malden. One thing that comes to mind is whenever I'm in the room with Dustin, and we typically meet as a teaching team once a week, we're all in the room. Brandon, who's here somewhere, I think in the room, is in there with us. Dustin will say things that has so much more to it than what he has just said, right? So there's so much more behind it, and for a guy who is very easily embarrassed, I am. I'm very easily embarrassed. It is like blood in the water for Dustin. Man, he, is, he, is on t- he loves that. And he loves kind of goading me. And he and I get a huge laugh out of it. But one of the things I love about Dustin that I've seen since I've gotten to know him so much better is this. He loves you guys. You know, if, you, if you're here for the first time or you haven't been here in a while, if you're looking for a place to plug in, you plug in here because you will have a pastor who loves you. And that's, that's he loves, I should, I should say it this way because I think it, it, in order of priority, it would be this way. He loves his Redeemer and his Savior. He loves Jesus. He loves his family, Sloan and the boys, and he loves you. In order of priority, that should be the priority in all of our lives, right? But you are high on that list, and I can just tell in his passion and his zeal for you how much he loves you. And it's no wonder God's doing some amazing things here at Five Forks Campus because of his love for you and your investment back into him and in this community. So thanks for being here today. There is one, I would say this, I said it in the first service, so I better say it again in the second service because it involves my wife and Dustin's wife, Sloan. There is one common denominator between he and I that's very similar. The best things about us are our wives. So the best thing about Dustin is Sloan. The best thing about me is my wife, Carrie. She's not here today. She's at Malden. So I am grateful to be able to know, to know the Dozers. So um, there, there's that. So let me jump in to this morning. Um, we're going to be looking for a few minutes at four titles that Isaiah, the prophet, hundreds of years ago gave to the coming child, uh, Jesus, that's given to us, the Christ child, the Messiah. Four names that we're going to unpack for just a little bit as we try to understand him a little bit more. These names describe qualities, um, define Jesus of who he would be by what he does. Right? So I was thinking through that, and I came across this term uh, called etymology. Now, researchers use this, and all that really means, at least in this context, for what we're talking about today, is the development of a particular name. So uh, a name can go through a sequence of uh, changes and developments until it comes to a culture where it's adopted. For instance, Christmas. When that name was first introduced in, um, I think, the 11th century, it, didn't, it was not Christmas, right? The first time that word was used, it was an old English term, and it was Christie's Massey, or the Mass of Christ. And over the years, over generations, it has become Christmas, at least to us in our culture. 
In the same way, last names, whatever your last name is in the room today, those also developed over the years from one culture to another. As people migrated, as immigrants came here, as people stopped living on their own and began to settle together and create communities, they began to adopt last names that would identify who they are. So I don't know, this is a little participation in the room. I don't know how many Davidsons we have in the room or if we have any Davidsons at all. You may know some Davidsons. Davidsons really literally came from the son of David. So it was combined to make David's sons. So a, another one would be this, the, the Smiths, very common name, right? So if we have any Smiths in the room, I would guarantee we probably at least have one, a Smith in the room. Smiths, that last name came from an occupation of people who used to uh, um, shape metal, smithies. And over the years, they identified that last name with that group of people. And the, the last name Smith developed out of that. Any Millers in the room, right? If you're a Miller in the room, right? That came from a group of people who worked at a mill, whether it's grinding stone or, or grinding uh, corn or grinding wheat on a stone, right? So that name developed from that. My last name is Moore. Now, it's, it's not as sexy as Miller or it's not as sexy as Smith. Moore actually comes from uh, a group of people who settled on a bog uh, beside a pond, Right, that's typically where that name comes from. It's actually still called a Moore today, M-O-O-R. We just added an E to it, and we became Moore. Right, that's the last name. My first name, Ashley, is not common in this culture anyway for a for a guy to have the name. Any Ashleys in the room that are guys? Okay, see, so it's not very common in a group of people where you have Ashley as, as the first name of a guy. I still go through the line at Chick-fil-A, and I give them my name, and I still pull up to the window, and I, they ask me still three times, Ashley, Ashley, yes, I'm Ashley, I promise I'm Ashley. I can give you my ID if we need to do that, um, but uh, not to their fault. It's just not common in our culture unless you have a mom who grew up in the deep south who loved the movie Gone with the Wind. Right? So if you have a mom who grew up in the Deep South that loved the movie Gone with the Wind, there's a main character in there. His name's Ashley, and she loved that name. And so I got that name because of that. Names are descriptive of who we are, at least for the most part. We put thought into them. They describe a little bit about who we are, where we come from. Many times we know someone by literally what they do. You may know a first name, but you can't associate that person, and you don't know who they are, and maybe the next question is, now tell me again what they do. And then when they describe it, you know it. You can associate it, right? That's how names many times work. Names reveal qualities. Names reveal clues. Names reveal characteristics about people. And so when we come to this uh, this passage in Isaiah chapter 9 about the names of Jesus, that's what it's going to do for us today. It's going to reveal things about Jesus maybe we didn't recognize before, qualities about who he is that we didn't see before. And so that's what we want to do today, and I would, I would attempt to do today in the time that we have. So our main idea, my main idea for this morning, the names of Jesus, or the names given to Jesus, sorry, reveal the promises given to us. The names given to Jesus, guys, if I need to change or move something, y'all let me know. The names given to Jesus are the promises given to us. 
That's what we're going to look at. We're going to look at those names, those four titles, not actual names of Jesus, but things that describe who he is. So a little context, a little setting for us this morning. Anytime you come to a passage like Isaiah or a book like Isaiah, maybe one that you're not very familiar with, you haven't done a lot of studying in, as a as, a, as a, a, a Christ follower who wants to study God's word, you've heard Dustin, I'm sure, say this, and I would encourage you to do this. Don't just go to one passage and read it and think you understand exactly what that author was trying to say at that moment. Read more of it. Understand the context. Understand why it was written. Understand, try your best to understand who it was written to. Who was his audience? So we're going to understand that a little bit before we jump into the names here in chapter 9. and the final part of chapter 8 in Isaiah, the known world... Uh, at that moment, Isaiah is in darkness. Isaiah was a prophet in the 8th century to the southern nation of Judah. And so at that time in the world, Isaiah is prophesying, foretelling to the nation of Judah and therefore also to the nation of Israel what would happen, what God was saying to his people. That was the purpose of a prophet. We have in chapter 8, and you can read this in the middle of chapter 8 toward the end yourself, we have some muttering or murmuring going on among the people. Um, uh, it's better translated this, twittering. I don't know how many of you are on Twitter, but this twittering okay, it can literally be translated as the people were murmuring, they were mumbling, they were grumbling, they were twittering. They understood what was on the horizon. They understood they were a small uh, fish in a very big ocean. And they understood that in, 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 in just a few years, just a few decades, a larger nation would come in and overtake them, and it was already begin, beginning to happen. These people, in, the, in that situation, God's people should be inquiring of God, yet they are doing the exact opposite. Uh, it was a time of despair. It was a time of darkness. It was a time of gloom. Not a lot of hope, if any. Uh, piece by piece, uh, one bite at a time, the nation of Israel was being assimilated by foreign powers. At that time in the world, Assyria was the, was the, was the giant uh, among all the nations, and it was conquering all the nations around them, and Israel was next on the list. And one bite at a time, one city at a time, Assyria would send in raiders to overtake these little cities one bite at a time. So the people understood what was happening, and soon, in 722, the entire nation would be overtaken and taken into exile. And then in 586 later, Jerusalem, Judea, same thing, overtaken, taken into exile. The drumbeat of being conquered was getting louder and louder and louder, and the people knew it. The two cities that they mention, Isaiah mentions at the beginning of chapter 9, and he says it also in 7 and 8, both Naphtali and Zebulun were two of these cities that the raiders had come in and begun to take over and take away. And so they understood, hey, we don't have a lot of time. We, it's, it's gloomy, it's, it's dark. There's no hope. We're in despair. So what do we do? Well, the people began to go to others to try to find a way out, to try to find hope, to try to find encouragement. Everything else other than Yahweh, the Lord, who had made them his people. In chapter 8, you can also read about them going to actual sorcerers or necromancers, those who would command the dead to try to find out what can we do? What alliances can we make to keep ourselves viable as a nation? 
And the one that could do that for them, they were turning their back on. They didn't consult at all. They had no desire to do it. Isaiah's words, if you have your Bibles, Isaiah's words at the end of chapter 8, you can turn there in verse 21 and 22, sum it up for us. Here's where they were. Here's what was happening. Isaiah says, They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God. And turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth and behold distress, darkness, gloom of anguish. And they will be thrust into thick darkness. That's the context. That's what's happening. That's where the people are in Israel and in Judah. I need that. Thanks, Steve. All right, that better? Okay. We'll go with this. Ruin to the point of insignificance is where the nation was. They had gotten to the point where nothing else would satisfy this desire to be brought out of this gloom, to be brought out of this darkness. Instead of trusting in Yahweh, they trusted in other things, other people, other sources of information. Ruin to the point of insignificance for those who trust in their own counsel, their own authority, their own permanence, if you will. In other words, they had in their mind that they would be there for a whole lot longer than they would be. They thought they were established. And instead of trusting in Yahweh to establish that, and if you know your biblical history, to fulfill his promise to make them his people, a remnant. He made a covenant with them all the way back in Genesis that they would be his people and he would be their God. Instead of trusting in the covenant God had made with them, they turned to their own devices. They began to look for other ways out instead of trusting in the Lord. Now here's the reality and here's the truth, and we'll jump into the titles and this affirms this. There is only one who comes to establish his kingdom. He alone, Jesus, the one that Isaiah prophesies about here, is worthy of glory and he's worthy of praise. He's also worthy of his people turning to him in times of despair and gloom and darkness. These were Isaiah's words to his people, but I can say this with all confidence. It's his words, it's God's word to us today. Because there are many of you probably in the room who, fa- who are facing gloom, you're facing darkness, you don't know how to overcome what's in front of you, or you do know how, at least you think you know how to overcome it, and by your own devices, by your own way, you are going about trying to figure out how you're going to accomplish, overcome, fulfill your purpose in life by any other means other than trusting in the Lord to do that. And what Isaiah prophesied would be true for us as well. If we turn our back on him and trust in our own permanence, trust in our own authority. So what Isaiah does is as he's talking about this promised Messiah, then he goes to these titles, and these titles themselves will actually display and show us who Jesus is. The first one here is Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. The titles of the promised child describe our need and also his nature. Wonderful counselor is literally translated a wonder of a counselor. It's used most of the time, if not every time, with 
a divine name. It only makes sense, this term wonderful in the Hebrew, it only makes sense if it's attached to a divine, to a divine name. So a wonder of a counselor then makes sense. Counselors during that time, especially in the royal courts, were very common. Kings would have counselors that would come and counsel him. If you remember the Christmas story, you remember Herod bringing in counselors, wise men, to try to help him understand who this new baby, who this king of the Jews really is that was born. So it was a common theme. It was a common practice during those times, especially in the royal court. Wonderful could be translated this. Uh, it, it could be understood as that person who would say things, do things that would cause others to wonder about who they are. And if you just follow the life of Jesus from his very beginning of being born into our world, wonder was shown to all those who came in contact with him. You just think of the wise men who were on their way to find Jesus following a star, and it caused them to wonder who this baby was, who this child was, who this king of the Jews would be that was prophesied about. The shepherds on the hillside with the angels who came and they proclaimed who this child was. They were one, it was wonder and amazement in their minds. You think of Mary and Joseph. Mary, when she's told about this child that she was going to give birth to that had been conceived in her womb by the Holy Spirit, it said she pondered these things. Another way to understand that is she wondered about these things. The religious leaders of Jesus' day, as he grows and as he goes, think of the temple as he goes there in Luke chapter 2, and he begins to teach as a child those religious leaders in the temple. They were amazed and wondered who this child was. His disciples later, as he grew to become a man, as they're going out across the Sea of Galilee and a storm comes up, and they think they're going to die, and Jesus is roused, he's awakened, and he gets up and he tells the wind and the waves to be still. And what do we see his disciples do? They wondered and asked themselves, who is this that can command the sea and the wind? They wondered in amazement about who this Jesus was. He has caused nations to wonder for centuries of who he is. Yet, what he did is he took a step to reveal himself, as we studied even last week, as he became Emmanuel, God with us. A counselor, all of us at some point, some of you in the room, me included at some point, maybe even currently, go to someone to counsel, to, to get word of, of, of what to do, searching for ultimate purpose and meaning or soliciting another for advice, for encouragement, for wisdom because you have no idea what to do, for a problem you're unable to overcome. What Isaiah is saying here is that Jesus, this child given to us, will be our wonderful counselor. And we're all in need of that. No one in the room today has gotten to the point where they understand everything about who Jesus is and what he wants them to do. In fact, at least in my experience, the older I get and the more I try to understand and study God's word, who he is and who I am, I feel like the less I know. I don't know if you're that way. I feel like the less I understand, even I'm, I'm gaining in wisdom in God's word, who he is just so overwhelms what I thought I knew about him in a great amazing way. The people of Isaiah's day were in great need of a counselor but sought direction from sources other than the one true God. Now, I would say for us we haven't progressed any further in this culture. 
our culture, our society, our individual lives, our families, many times we are seeking other things to give us wisdom, to give us insight on what to do. Questions that we have that we don't know answers to, don't have answers to, we will consult, I will consult so many other things before I go to God's Word to try to consult with the Father, who knows, with the wonderful counselor who can give the answer. What Isaiah was saying is that this child given to us will be this wonderful counselor. We consistently seek information from those sources, then from him, in those times of despair, of gloom, and the problems we face. So Jesus, first of all, Isaiah says, will be a wonderful counselor. Secondly, he will be a mighty God. He will be a mighty God. Elsewhere, this is used of one who is valiant in battle. Psalms 24 says, says this, Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. That's who Isaiah is describing here in Isaiah chapter 9. In other words, think of it this way, powerful to the point of accomplishing whatever he so chooses. There is nothing that God, divine God, that's who it's associating this with. Jesus is God. There's nothing that he can set out to accomplish that he doesn't have the power to accomplish. This is the mighty God that Isaiah is coming to us. It emphasizes for us the son's deity, and it also emphasizes his power. So he will be our wonderful counselor, Isaiah says. He will also be mighty God emphasizing his deity, emphasizing his power. Thirdly, he says he will be the everlasting father. Rarely does the quality and character of, uh, of one show or described when they are first born. Typically, uh, it is at the end of their life, when they're eulogized, when they're honored, when the things that are great about them are said or are told. Rarely do we have it on the front end, as Isaiah is doing here with the Christ child. The title, Everlasting Father, think of it this way, emphasizes the eternal nature of the Son, who was one with the Father. The literal Hebrew here can be described, you could translate it this way, Father of Eternity. It has been understood in different ways, especially since Father has a great range of meanings in the original language. The Hebrew expression could also mean possessor. It could also mean originator of eternity. Here's the point Isaiah was making. This child that is given to us was from before the beginning. He has always been and will be after what we know as this world and our time has long gone. He is the everlasting Father. This has a Trinitarian allusion to it. The Trinity, I don't, today is not enough time. One day, one week, one year, five years, not enough time to describe Trinity. There's a mystery to it. That's not the point for today, but it does have the allusion to that. The relationships within the Trinity are a great mystery. You could study them your whole life and not really understand them fully because there's a mystery to the language and they're expressed in language beyond that of everyday use. For example, what kind of a son is just as old as his father? He's, he's called here by Isaiah the everlasting father. Or what kind of a son is older than his mother, Mary? This is tapping into the whole idea of who Jesus is. He was here from the beginning, and he will be here until the end. He is everlasting father. John chapter 1 says it this way, In the beginning was the word. 
right? The word there being logos, the word there being Jesus himself. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. We also see that even the words of this everlasting father, this child given to us at uh, what we celebrate Christmas, will last forever. Matthew 24 says, heaven and earth will pass away. But the word of the Lord stands forever. He is for us the everlasting father. It is descriptive of who he is, the child that we celebrate during this Christmas season. He is the wonderful counselor. He is the mighty God. He is the everlasting father. And then the last title that we see here in Isaiah, he is the prince of peace. The beautiful title, prince of peace, reflects the nature of his rule, which will bring an end of warfare and it will bring a wholeness to society. An idea included in the Hebrew word translated peace. Anytime you see that word in the Old Testament as peace, it's translated as wholeness, as completeness. And that's what this child would bring. He would be a ruler from the line of David. His ever-expanding government of peace would never end and would be characterized by fairness. It would be characterized by justice and guaranteed by the passionate commitment of the Lord of heaven's armies. You see that in, in verse 7. The zeal of the Lord will make this happen. Isaiah is making sure we understand in these titles who this Jesus is, who this child born to us will be. As the angels appeared in Luke and they said this as they communicated to the shepherds what was coming, who this child is, here's the phrase that they used, peace on earth and goodwill towards men. This child is the prince of peace. And he will bring completeness and he will bring wholeness to those that accept him and embrace him. So as we, as we land and as we wind down, here's what I want to end on. This thought is this. What we need most is found in the person of Jesus. What you and I need most, what the people that Isaiah was speaking to here, uh, what we need today in our culture and our society is this. Uh, we need someone who can save us from our sins. That's the most, um, uh, most important need you and I have. In fact, the name of Jesus literally translates to that. He will save his people from their sins. So we can narrow it down and we can, we, can, we can boil it down to even this. We all need Jesus. And Jesus comes as a wonderful counselor, as a mighty God, as a prince of peace and as an everlasting father. We determine a lot of times for ourselves the most qualified to save us, the most qualified in our minds to lead us or to speak for us. We do it all the time of personal, uh, based off personal biases or based off personal preferences. In other words, who do we think is best to lead us? Who do we think is best to save us? Who do we think is best to speak for us? There's a, there's a character in the Old Testament. If you know your Old Testament and King Saul, he was the predecessor before King David. King Saul came to the throne because the people of his day had decided amongst themselves that they wanted to be like all the other nations. They wanted to be led just like all the other nations who had a king over them. And so they came to Samuel and they said, hey, we want a king to lead us because we want to be like all the other nations. And here's what we think is most important for this king to lead us. And one of the things that appeared over and over and over again as they chose who they thought should speak for them and lead them and save them was that Samuel was tall. Right, it said over and over again, he, he was head and shoulders 
above everyone else. So in other words, the people chose him because of appearance, because of stature. Now what's amazing about that, among many things, is that the one coming after him is the exact opposite of that. King David, one who got overlooked even when the brothers were lined up to be chosen king. David was forgotten. Yet that is the one God had in mind to lead his people, to save his people, to speak for his people and redeem them. That is the example we get as we look at other people to lead us as the people of Israel chose someone after their own heart in appearance and in stature. God had a man in mind that will be a man after his own heart, which is how David is described. Now here's the connection with what we're looking at today from this line of David, the wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the everlasting father, the prince of peace would come from this line of David all the way down. So the question I have for you and I today to consider is this, as, as, as we think through this Christmas season, it was a challenge to my own heart. Maybe it would be to yours to think of it this way. What name do you give Jesus? How do you consider him? What do you think about when you think about Jesus? At Christmas time, is it just the baby in the manger? Is that only how you think of him? Is that only the time in your life where you actually celebrate who this Jesus is? Once all the, the family have gone home who've traveled in for the holidays, once all the presents have been opened and put away, maybe the decorations taken down and stored, the last of the traditions of the Christmas season have checked off the list. Who is Jesus to you at that point? Does he just become another one of the ornaments or the nativity scenes packed up and put away? And the only time he becomes central to who we are is during the Christmas season. If baby Jesus at Christmas time is the only name you know him by, it's very likely you know him at all. In other words, if the only time you consider and celebrate him is when it's attached to all the other things going on at Christmas time, there's a good chance you do not know him as wonderful counselor, as mighty God, as everlasting Father and as Prince of Peace. And what Isaiah says to us today from hundreds of years ago is that's who this Jesus is. That's who we celebrate. I'd like to summarize it this way and then I'll pray for us. If we're talking about these titles, this is who it is. He is the one who speaks marvelous truth into your heart and mind with the power and the ability to see it done from eternity past present and future for the complete rest and renewing hope for all people. That is who this Jesus is. That is who Isaiah described hundreds of years before. That is who is Emmanuel and has come to us and is God with us. This is Jesus. We worship him at Christmas and we praise him forever. The team's gonna come in just a minute and lead us in a song that speaks explicitly, primarily about these titles of Jesus. And so I pray for you as you sing this, if you're here today, 
and you don't know this Jesus except for when he's brought out at Christmas time. You have the opportunity during this song after the service to know this Jesus, to understand who he is, to understand that he is the wonderful counselor, he is a mighty God, he is an everlasting father, and he is the Prince of Peace that can bring wholeness and completeness to your life. And I would pray you'd consider that as we sing our last song together. Let's pray. God, I thank you for the opportunity this morning to be here to worship, to understand who you are, hopefully a little bit better. My prayer is is that we would understand through our time this morning that you are much more than a baby in a manger at Christmas time. That we would understand much more that you are the God who has been there from the beginning. That you are the wonderful counselor who speaks truth in our life when we need it most. That you identify our greatest need and not just identify it, you deal with it. You came just so that you could deal with that ultimate problem that we have of sin. You are a mighty God who can see it through, who can see it done. And God, in so doing, you are the Prince of Peace who makes us whole, who completes us. And so God, this morning, I pray if there are those in the room that need to know who this Jesus is, that they would take the time this morning to bow their head and their knee in your presence and humbly cry out to you. And I pray this in Jesus' name.